So today's Bible reading can be found on page 467 of the Bibles in the Seats. So one detail worth knowing before we read that isn't immediately clear is that we're going to be hearing about a man called Adonijah and he's one of David's sons. When King David was very old, he could not keep warm, even when they put covers over him. So his attendant said to him, Let us look for a young virgin to serve the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our lord the king may keep warm. Then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful young woman and found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The woman was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no sexual relations with her. Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father had never rebuked him by asking, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next to Absalom. Adonijah conferred with Joab, son of Jeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they gave him their support. But Zadok, the priest, Benaiah, son of Jehodiah, Nathan, the prophet, Shimei and Ray, and David's special guard did not join Adonijah. Adonijah then sacrificed sheep, cattle, and fattened calves at the stone of Zoheleth near Enrogel. He invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and the royal officials of Judah, but he did not invite Nathan, the prophet, or Benaiah, or the special guard, or his brother Solomon. Then Nathan asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, Have you not heard Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and our Lord David knows nothing about it? Now then, let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in to King David and say to him, My lord the king, did you not swear to me your servant? Surely Solomon your son will be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? While you are still there talking to the king, I will come in and add my word to what you have said. We'll now skip over to verse 29. In the verses that we're skipping over, Nathan and Bathsheba go and see David as planned, and we have David's response and conclusion from verse 29. The king then took an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out this very day what I swore to you, the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. In the rest of chapter 1, David keeps that oath and Solomon is put on the throne. And so now we're going to skip to the start of chapter 2 from verse 1. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon his son. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations, as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. 
Now you yourself know what Joab, son of Zeruiah, did to me, what he did to the two commanders of Israel's armies, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether. He killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime as if in battle, and with that blood he stained the belt around his waist and the sandals on his feet. Deal with him according to your wisdom, but do not let his grey head go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai of Gilead, and let them be among those who eat at your table. They stood by me when I fled from your brother Absalom. And remember, you have with you Shimei, son of Jira, the Benjamite from Baruim, who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to Maniam. When he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I saw to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword. But now do not consider him innocent. You are a man of wisdom. You will know what to do to him. Bring his gray head down to the grave in blood. Then David rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. He had reigned 40 years over Israel, seven in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David and his rule was firmly established. Uh, thanks so much, Audrey. Not the most straightforward reading. Uh, yeah, brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, hi again. Uh, Cam Maxwell is my name. If you missed it, I'm one of the staff here. Um, and a few months ago, I was at a conference for uh, people like myself who are preparing to start a new church. And the topic of the preaching program came up. You know, what parts of the Bible should you look at in the first few months as a new church? Uh, and I was listening along to all these great ideas people were sharing about what they were doing and what they're planning to do. And they asked me, what are you, you going to do at Tonsley? I said, oh, we're going to um, finish off Luke's gospel as we get started in the build-up to Easter, and there was lots of approving nods, and that sounds like a good idea. And then I said, after that, we're planning to do an eight-week series in 1 Kings. People sort of stopped nodding at that point and looked a bit puzzled and almost concerned at some point. Uh, why are you doing that? Um, around the same time, actually, I was, I was chatting to someone, and uh, the topic of devotional life came up, and they were sharing how, like, how well their Bible reading had been going. They were loving getting to Scripture and uh, reading and finding it just a, a real delight. And then... They said, I got to 1 Kings. It was kind of like hitting a wall and uh, sort of the wheels fell off. Um, I laughed out loud at that point because, I mean, that's very relatable, isn't it? Sort of reading really, uh, really getting into something and hitting a part of the Bible, whether it's Leviticus or 1 Kings, and it kind of derails uh, us a little bit. But I also was laughing because, yeah, this is a bad idea. Uh, eight weeks in 1 Kings. Uh, it's a pretty complex part of the Old Testament. You'll have already had a, a real flavour of that from uh, Audrey's uh, reading just before. There is a lot of detail. It's hard to take it all in and work out like, uh, what's going on. Uh, there's people we've basically never heard anything about doing things we don't really understand at first. And most of all, it can be hard at first just to know, how does this have anything to do with my life? Uh, how is one king is going to help me follow Jesus? So, uh, with all that in mind, why did I think One Kings would be a great idea in uh, our second kind of month together, or thereabouts? Um, to be honest, uh, I think um, the last book I worked through uh, preaching was 2 Samuel, the book just before this uh, in the Old Testament, and I don't have much imagination, so I was thinking, what should we do next? It was the book after, One Kings. Uh, more than that, though, I, just, I think this is who we are as a church. Uh, we are convinced that God speaks to us through all of the Bible, uh, the whole lot, um, some parts of the Bible are very easy to understand and very uplifting and encouraging, and it speaks directly uh, to our day-to-day life. Um, some parts, though, are very hard to work out what's going on. They're detailed and complex. It takes plenty of thought and prayer. 
And I don't think we want to be a church that only reads 10 to 20% of the Bible. Uh, We want to read and unpack the whole lot of it because God has spoken all of Scripture for us. Uh, The parts that are confronting, the parts that are confusing, the parts that are controversial. As a church, we'll be reading the whole lot, actually, in our life together. And um, time and time again, we'll find the parts less traveled in Scripture have so much gold uh, that we would otherwise miss. And so my hope is, if you stick around long enough with us, uh, let's say over 20 years or so, we'll cover the whole Bible uh, week in, week out. What a great 20 years that will be. Um, That's why we're doing a series like this. But I also want to say, as we get started in 1 Kings, it's also just a brilliant book in its own right. It might be a bit hard to jump in cold, and that's been the key word perhaps today. Um, But I want to say, going through 1 Kings as we're doing, it's not just a case of, okay, let's just grind our way through the Old Testament, kind of eat our vegetables uh, before we get back to the New Testament. It's not like that at all. Uh, This is an amazing book. Uh, It's full of complex drama and plots and uh, conspiracies. Uh, There's very complex characters with interesting backstories we get to meet and find out more about. We get to witness, actually, in 1 Kings and uh, later on in 2 Kings, uh, the follow-up, we get to see the rise and fall of a great empire. We also get to see the very detailed construction plans for a temple. So it's something for everyone. The architects, interior designers, you've got the whole lot. It's genuinely, I think, though, part of the best story ever told. It's the story about God. This book is about His kingdom. And if you take a step back from what's going on in all of Scripture, it's one way to describe the story of the Bible is the story of God and His kingdom. And that's what we're getting right into the heart of in 1 Kings. So when you think about Jesus and His ministry, uh, you read through the Gospel accounts where Jesus bursts into the scene, He starts teaching and He uh, does all these miracles. Like, what was He teaching about? What was the thing Jesus kept teaching about? It was always about the kingdom of God. The miracles He performs are about the kingdom of God. Um, so I've gotten uh, on the screen here for us from Luke 4, as Jesus starts his public ministry, he tells people around him, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, because that is why I was sent. Jesus is saying the reason he came from heaven to earth is to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. His whole ministry was centered around that concept, the kingdom. His parables, the famous ones about mustard seeds and lost sheep, they're about the kingdom. Even his title, Jesus the Christ, uh, that is literally the the anointed king. We're worshipping an anointed king of God's kingdom. So if we're followers of Jesus, we're part of his kingdom. And here's a challenge for all of us. Uh, Could you explain to someone else what the kingdom of God is? If someone asks you, what's the kingdom of God, what would you say? It's the thing Jesus taught the most about. What is it? Do we grasp what it is and... Do we know the amazing blessings we have as being part of that kingdom? So, 1 Kings, I think, takes us heart, to the heart of what it is to be uh, in the kingdom of God and what that is. We'll learn about God, we'll learn about His kingdom, uh, and we'll learn most of all about His King, Jesus. And I do hope and pray that as we go through this series, we will grow an understanding of what it means to belong and be part of His wonderful kingdom. Uh, Before we really launch into the sermon, though, I just want to encourage us in the coming weeks, I'd love it if we're all reading along uh, uh, 1 Kings. Um, For instance, in the the week coming up, you might like to read chapters 1 and 2 again. Um, Maybe take some great notes today to sort of help you, if you're able to, to kind of, uh, things kind of you struck by, to come back and do some more reading later in the week. I say that because my job as a preacher, I don't think it's to do all the thinking and reflecting for us. 
Um, I think my job as a preacher is to help, help us to read the Bible for ourselves, and that's what my aim is as we go through 1 Kings. Now, one of the hardest parts of understanding any part of the Bible, and I think especially the Old Testament, is getting our head around how it fits into the really big picture, uh, the whole storyline of the Bible. Uh, because if you know the whole storyline, the details make sense, don't they? Uh, we can kind of work out which details are the crucial ones and which ones are the, the less crucial. Um, so imagine for a moment, like, you, uh, you just pick up a random episode from a, from a long-running TV series. You've never seen the series before. Uh, you just pick up, let's just say, uh, episode six of season six of a ten-season series. Watching a random episode of a long-running series doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? The characters, the plot lines, all the details kind of, kind of wash over us. Um, but if you take a step back, if you know the characters, you know the struggles they're having, the things they're trying to overcome... You know the series, so you know how that, that particular episode makes sense and uh, how it speaks. So let's start by finding our bearings. Um, and for these first two chapters, um, I want to say yeah, something about uh, where we are in history, but also about the major issue that hangs over this entire book of one and two kings. Uh, the kind of issue that makes us nervous every time we turn the page, what's going to happen next? So first of all, where are we in history? Now, um, I've, I don't do a lot of slides uh, with my preaching. I want to do more of it. Uh, so I spent many, many hours yesterday coming up with this wonderful uh, timeline for us. Um, yeah, not many hours, but anyway. Um, you'll notice on the, on the far left there is the pyramids of Egypt. Um, so uh, that's the Exodus. Uh, we're about halfway between the Exodus from Egypt and the exile to Babylon. That's the rivers of Babylon, if you're wondering what that uh, blue line there is. Um, so we're about smack bang in the middle as we get to Solomon, halfway between the Exodus and, uh, so about 950 BC, somewhere around there, as we get to Solomon. Um, one and two kings actually takes us all the way up from uh, you know, Solomon here, halfway through, all the way up to the exile. So a bit of a spoiler alert, right? We know how this finishes. It finishes with the kingdom in exile, uh, basically no more. It's a bit of a uh, sad spot to sort of start, actually, knowing the end. Uh, but it's important to point that out because the first pe people to read 1 and 2 Kings, they were probably sitting by the rivers of Babylon trying to work out, what the heck? How did, how did we, God's special people, how did we end up here? What went wrong? And so they read 1 and 2 Kings to find out. Um, the big thing, though, that we need to keep in mind all through this book, with a focus on kings, the big thing we need to keep in mind to help us understand the details uh, is the pretty outrageous promise that God made to David uh, a few years ago. Uh, back in uh, 2 Samuel 7, I'll put this on the screen, but you might like to instead flick to your Bibles on page 434. Uh, we're looking at 2 Samuel 7, page 434. It's on the screen as well. But from verse 11, uh, God sends the prophet Nathan there's a name you might recognize uh, from our reading before. God sends the prophet Nathan to speak to King David, and this is what Nathan says. The Lord declares to you, uh, this is from verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Here's the big bit. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now that is an outrageous promise, isn't it, of an everlasting kingdom. There's a dynasty, an right? everlasting one. A kingdom that will be full of God's blessings for everyone in that kingdom. 
that promise hangs over all of 1 Kings. It's a tantalizing promise because, as we've seen in the coming weeks of Solomon, it feels like it's almost within reach. Uh, maybe Solomon is the one who will, uh, will be the, the one who establishes his eternal throne. But later, we'll see, that promise seems further and further from grasp, more and more unlikely with every king we meet. And so we start here with King David. Uh, here he is in chapter 1, verse 1 of uh, 1 Kings. This great legend, the leader, uh, the soldier, the poet, the worship leader, the ladies' man, the man's man, the giant killer, he's done it all. Most of all, he's the man who sought to be God's king. The thing we should note most and foremost about David is he humbled himself before God, knowing that God is the true king. But here we see King David with his days almost over. This great, great man uh, reduced to, well, what we see here. It's a really sad scene, isn't it, in the start of chapter 1? Uh, David, who is you know, bigger than life, a giant of history, his body is packing up and he can't generate enough heat to stay warm. Something we can all relate to right now, I'm sure, and increasingly so in the coming months. Um, do feel free, by the way, to bring beanies and uh, blankets and all those sorts of things in, in the weeks to come. It's weird, though. I mean, the solution that, the, that David's attendants offer here, are like, I'm sure we all find it quite disturbing. <laughs> it's a bit of an odd solution they come up with. They search the land for the most beautiful girl they can find. Uh, and this poor, young, beautiful Abishag, not only has the unfortunate name Abishag, um, she goes and wins the, you know, the Miss Israel beauty pageant, and her prize is she has to cuddle up to a dying old man as his hot water bottle. <laughs> there's, there's the prize no one wanted to win. Now, the narrator doesn't point out to us that this is a weird and strange thing to do. I think we can kind of work that bit out for ourselves. It's, it's odd. But what's going on, I think, is the presence of Abishag in this story and the whole scene, it just becomes even more pathetic when you look at David. You might remember his greatest scandal after David was, as a younger man, adultery and murder. Uh, it all kicked off because he saw a, a beautiful woman bathing, Bathsheba, who we'll see again in a second. But here, as the story starts, David's old, and now the most beautiful woman in the land, literally lying next to him in his bed, uh, the narrator says he has no sexual relationship with her. Um, clearly, I think, it's not because he's just being a gentleman. I think the point is, he's nearly dead. Uh, he's a shadow of his former self. He has no vitality left. Now, as a bit of a side note at this point, and especially for our youth and our young adults here today, um, the first and obvious thing to say, to take away from home for this, is stay away from beauty pageants. Uh, if we hear anything else today, do hear that. But we see something, I think, very confronting. Uh, as we see David on his deathbed, uh, this young, uh, once young, vital, full-of-life guy, realise, well, yes, for all of us, life does continue to move away from us. And earlier in his life, David wrote Psalm 39, and I think this psalm... Uh, these, these worst, these, uh, this prayer, actually, that David pens for us is a great model for us uh, that we might pray this ourselves. Again on our screen, uh, from Psalm 39, David writes, Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Now, that is a good prayer for all of us, is it not? Uh, perhaps a good one to reflect on our week, asking God that would help us number our days. Because as we see a dying David and confronted with, yeah, the fact that death is a real problem, 
the response is not to fear death, but to turn to God and help us uh, count and live our days accordingly, knowing how short our life is now, but in the sweep of eternity, seeing what, what it really is. So this is the great problem, I think, with one and two kings, uh, death. Uh, God has promised an everlasting kingdom, but then each king kind of just has his habit of dying eventually. It doesn't matter, actually, how good the king is. Uh, David is a great example, great king, but, of course, he goes on to die. And the problem with a great king dying is that his successor has zero guarantee of being any good at all. In fact, as we see, when a good king dies in this story, almost always his successor is terrible. And so you think, with this promise of an everlasting kingdom, how, how is God going to keep that promise? Death is a problem. Um, sure enough, as a bit of a spoiler alert, uh, one and two kings gives us the long list of David's descendants. They don't humble themselves before God. And actually, each death just makes it more and more depressing, worse and worse, thinking God will not keep his promise here. And so God ultimately does keep his promise, uh, not in 1 Kings, as we'll see it as we go, but ultimately in the resurrection of Jesus, David's great descendant. After Jesus' resurrection, one of the things the disciples celebrated and preached about was that, well, the fact that Jesus had died and then risen to life, never to die again, means that he's the one who can sit on the throne forever. His rule, Jesus' rule, we can be thankful, won't be interrupted by death like it is here for David. And that's a very good thing. Because look what happens as David dies. This good king dies, and from verse 5 onwards, we see there's a grab for power. And uh, from verse 5, I think this kind of sets the tone for the whole book. Uh, people who are refusing to humble themselves, as, a, as God's king should, and instead cling and grab at power. What a disaster for the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not sure how to say his name. I'll go with Adonijah. Um, Adonijah is one of David's sons. Uh, he's handsome, he's politically savvy, uh, he's very ambitious. At verse 5, he puts himself forward and he says, I will be king. Uh, he's a man who knows he's going places and knows what to do to get there. Um, to be fair to um, Adonijah, he is probably the oldest of David's surviving sons, and so he's probably just assuming, yeah, I'm the oldest, the crown should pass to me. And so what's the problem here? He ticks a lot of boxes, it would seem. Well, it emerges, I think, that... the the problem is the kingdom of God doesn't run like the kingdoms of our world, where the most ambitious and politically savvy people get ahead. See, the problem with Adonijah is that he doesn't tick the boxes that truly counts. Uh, for a start, the actual king, David, he's still alive. He hasn't given his blessing to Adonijah. And worse than that, in verse 8, we find that Adonijah doesn't have the blessing of Nathan the prophet. Nathan in these chapters, and actually throughout David's life as well, he's kind of a, a figure who represents God's Word. He is God's spokesman. I think it's as if to say, if you don't have Nathan on your side, you don't have God on your side, which seems to be a bit of a problem if you're trying to rule his kingdom. It doesn't seem to bother Adonijah, though, who goes ahead, verses 9 and 10, he gets his supporters together, and we find out later he's getting them together to go and make him king. Never mind the fact that David is still you know, technically alive at this point. But isn't this the pattern of our world? Uh, the way that leaders climb over each other to get ahead, uh, putting themselves forward, exalting themselves, yeah, I'll do that, I can do that, I'll be great at it. Uh, not so in the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus tells his disciples, they're arguing about which of them is the greatest. He tells them, don't be like Adonijah, or you know, don't be like those uh, who are in power in our world. In Mark 10, Jesus says, not so with you. Instead, 
Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So greatness in the kingdom of God isn't about being in charge, it's not about calling the shots. Greatness is about serving. It's about exalting others before ourselves. And I just want to say, like, I pray that will be a great truth always for me, personally, because I think leaders of churches do tend to get this wrong uh, regularly. Uh, I pray that it will be a precious truth uh, for us all, knowing we all belong to the kingdom of Jesus. We know that He is the great King who has given Himself over for us. Jesus humbled Himself for us. He humbled Himself to death on the cross, our King on a cross, uh, serving us with His life, with His death. This is a great king we have and a great kind of kingdom uh, pattern he's given us of service and greatness. And I'm, I'm really thankful as we've started a church here, I think we already have this great hallmark as, as God's people in this church. I think we already have a great culture of serving and looking out for others and jumping in and helping with incredible humility and grace. And uh, yeah, keep praying we might continue uh, that for many years to come. Back to Adonijah though, because one of the things we have to wonder about him is, why did he not know he wasn't going to be the king? Why was this even a question for him? Had no one ever sat him down and said, look mate, it's just not for you. It doesn't seem like that's happened for him. In fact, in verse 6, all we get insight into is that David never stepped into and corrected his sons. Um, Well, his son's pretty self-indulgent and uh, self-exalting behaviour. They've never corrected him. Now, I'd like to think uh, if one of my boys had 50 men running in front of his chariot uh, when he popped down to the shops, I'd probably want to have a word to him about that, uh, about his kind of humility and his character. Um, I'd perhaps at least try and have a good heart-to-heart. David doesn't do that. He's, he's missing in action as a responsible father. And that's been a recur- recurring theme for him. It's had disastrous consequences. And here again, David's inaction as a parent is disastrous. Well, it's nearly disastrous. But because God has promised to, uh, promised to David, uh, he's promised based on grace, uh, not on how well David operates as a father. He's op- God has promised on grace. And that's good news for any parent, isn't it? Because of God's promise, he intervenes and he actually heads off Adonijah's grab for power. So let me just uh, give us a brief account for the rest of chapter 1. Uh, from about verse 11, we didn't uh, read most of this, um, and we just sort of skip through some of the details. Um, starting with Nathan the prophet. Uh, Nathan, he, he takes action, doesn't he? And I think, actually, this is probably the key to everything for us as we read 1 Kings, uh, one of the many keys, uh, a great key for us. See, it's a very messy and complicated family situation, and w- what do they need? Uh, they need the Word of God to intervene. God needs to speak into this situation to change things, because that's how God always intervenes. It's always through His Word. God speaks into our lives, into the chaos, uh, he, he speaks by sending His Son, the Word of God, made flesh. And so as Nathan takes action, we find verse 13, um, we find out a bit later actually, God's choice is to make De- uh, Solomon the king, uh, we find out there. He, Nathan knows us all along. So Nathan gets to work, he teams up with the other hero of this chapter, Bathsheba, uh, Solomon's mum. Now isn't this nice, on Mother's Day of all days, it lines up perfectly, the great hero of the story, heroine of the story, is mum, uh, going to bat for a little boy, good on you mum. And then from verses 15 to 27 here, Nathan and Bathsheba, they go and see David, and they basically say, well, look, Adonijah's making himself king. You said it would be Solomon. Like, what's going on? Have you changed your mind? What are you doing? 
Uh, God's word here, uh, bought by Nathan the prophet, it seems to snap David out of his you know, death-like stupor. And isn't that true for us too? Uh, we need God to step in and speak into the chaos of our lives and to snap us out of spiritual stupor. We need His Word to do that, to shake us up, to, to remind us of His promises. That's, by the way, uh, why we have growth groups. Uh, we need people around us like Nathan, uh, people we get to share our life with and uh, talk about and uh, pray about the things going on, uh, but people who can open up God's Word with us and just talk about it and, and remind us of the promises, the encouragement we have in the Gospel. Uh, the reassurance of God's grace and uh, the encouragement to keep going, to persevere and to be faithful in the many uh, complex and messy situations in our lives. Do look forward to your groups. Uh, They'll be starting up in coming weeks. Great encouragement here is that as uh, Nathan and Bathsheba get to work, God's Word seems to move David into action. Verse 29, David says, right, let's do this. Uh, Let's move along straight away. Let's finally put Solomon on the throne. Let's do it today, basically. Uh, and then from verse 32 onwards, we have the wonderful account of that happening, of the kind of coronation. Uh, it's well worth reading through carefully and seeing just the drama and the, 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 the pomp and ceremony as uh, Solomon gets put on the throne. Right in the heart of that drama is, is Adonijah. Uh, meanwhile, he's at his own little coronation service, um, and he hears the commotion of the real coronation just a little bit down the road. Put yourself in his shoes for just a moment. As his world come, comes crashing down, he realises he's not going to be the king. He's not the king. There's another who will be. That's a crushing kind of reality for him, and I think also for, for many of us as we perhaps uh, come to terms with the fact that we are not the king. Uh, there is another who will rule in our place, that someone else will call the shots. Jesus is on the throne, not me. It's, it's a life-turning moment when we realise that, just like it is for Adonijah. As you get to the end of chapter 1, you see him, he's terrified for his life, and fair enough. Uh, yeah, if he's kind of threatened, uh, if he'd made a run for the throne and he doesn't get it, that's a very precarious position to be. So he's confronted with Solomon, the true king here, and rather than try and fight a losing battle, which he's, yeah, he's got no hope, all he can do is throw himself at Solomon's mercy. Again, this is a picture of us. The moment we are confronted with the reality of Jesus' rule over our life... We know He's risen from the dead. We, we have nothing else to cling to but His mercy at that point. We can't control our own lives and our kingdoms, but we can throw ourselves at His mercy. And it's great because Solomon here gives His mercy to Adonijah and we realise that's just a small taste of the kind of mercy Jesus has given each one of us. And so as we get to the start of chapter 2, which we're only going to touch on briefly here, but again, please do read chapter 2 carefully this week. There's lots in here. At the start of chapter 2, we have David's last words to his son Solomon. He's basically commissioning Solomon into his new role as king. Um, and not just being a king, but being God's king. So what must he do? These words here, at the start of chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, we'll come back to, I think, regularly throughout our series. Uh, because based on the promises God gave to David about an everlasting throne, these words he gives here, um, these, these words David gives to Solomon, his dying words, are, I think, the way to measure all the kings that will come after him. Will God's king be able to live up the standards that David is setting here? To be strong enough, to be courageous enough, uh, verse 3, to observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him. Keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations. Again, you know this is heading. Uh, some kings will do this well. Most don't even come close. Most don't, most don't care about that. 
And even the ones that do, again, death strikes them down eventually. So, how can God's kingdom be ruled by someone who, um, who can do that, uh, unless the king is obedient and humble? How can God's kingdom come on earth if each and every human is warped by sin and ultimately struck by death? We're reminded with these words, we do need a king like Jesus, uh, the perfect and humble, the meek, the gentle king, the obedient king who was obedient even to death on a cross. As we read uh, about Jesus' life in the New Testament, we realize so many people around him were just trying to work out, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we're waiting for? The one that will sit on David's throne? It was the question driving along uh, many conversations. Well, if you go and read these verses and then you read about Jesus' life, you realize, yes, he has come to fulfill what David speaks to Solomon here. Jesus is the only person actually qualified to sit on the throne as God's righteous king. Now, that is very good news for us. It's very good news that we get to enter the kingdom of God uh, just by putting our faith in King Jesus as our saviour. And as king, as good as Jesus is, uh, sorry, a king as good as Jesus is means that we get to belong to a wonderful kingdom. A kingdom that's about humility and service, uh, that raises up and blesses others. It's a kingdom that's about love and care, looking after those who are on the margins of our society. It's a kingdom about righteousness, where darkness and evil and sin have no more stranglehold on us. It's a kingdom of grace, not of works, so we don't sort of compete and jostle and have envy for others. It's a kingdom about life and joy and vitality. We to enjoy real life in the presence and relationship with our loving Heavenly Father, now and into eternity. It's a kingdom that's all about the praise and honour and glory of God Almighty. So praise Jesus. Uh, Praise Jesus for stepping into that role that no one else could, being the king to rule his kingdom eternally. Now, it'd be nice to sort of stop there, but unfortunately, chapter 2, I think, finishes on, let's just call it a bit of a sour note, um, to put it mildly. After verses 1 to 4, this great instruction to be God's righteous king, David goes on to tell Solomon, oh, kill that guy. (laughs) There's the guy to show mercy to, but there's another guy you should kill as well. It's kind of hard to know what to do that, how to do with that. If you're reading through this chapter in the week, um, I'm sure, uh, like for me, it won't sit comfortably because for the rest of chapter 2, that's what happens. Uh, Solomon does show mercy, uh, but those who have crossed him, uh, he orders their death. And that actually, in the end, includes Adonijah as well, who, as it turns out, ultimately didn't want to submit to another king. The rest of chapter 2 is quite hard reading uh, in many ways because the narrator doesn't give us words of approval or disapproval, um, But each death comes because someone has challenged or or threatened Solomon's authority as the king. I think it's particularly jarring for us because, you know, if someone loses the election, you know, like a few weeks' time, they're not going to get beheaded the next day, are they? Um, In Solomon's day, it was a bit different. A a run for the throne puts your life at risk. And so if Solomon's, his throne is under attack, so too is his life. It was a brutal world, and uh, I think that's sort of something we should bear in mind as we read this. Because to secure his throne, uh, it meant showing mercy when he could, but also passing judgment on rebels. So perhaps one takeaway uh, from that part of uh, this chapter is knowing that God's King Jesus, yes, he's meek and he's mild, but he's not to be trifled with. Because he's a king who's also the judge, and treason never sits well with a king. But I think even more than that, the end of chapter 2 tells us uh, what we know too well. 
Uh, the great problem with securing any throne in our world is it usually comes secured by blood, uh, shedding blood of the opposition, getting rid of the enemy. That makes a king safe on his throne usually. That's what happens for Solomon. There's a reality to that. Uh, his throne is secured by the blood of God's enemies. Actually, the blood of people just like us. I think that's what makes this end of the chapter so uncomfortable because who among us have never opposed Jesus and his rule over our life? The very good news, though, to finish on is that Jesus secured his throne by blood, yes, but not the blood of his enemies. Jesus secured his throne with his own blood. He died for the traitor, he died for the enemy, he died for us. He gives us peace and He gives us access to the kingdom of God. Praise Jesus, the King of kings. Amen.